0: Hi.
1: Theory. Welcome to High Theory.
0: In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams.
1: And I'm Sharonik Basu.
0: We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself.
1: On October 15th and 16th, High Theory is participating in the Humanities Podcasting Symposium, organized by the Humanities Podcast
0: Network. We hope you join us for a series of roundtables and workshops on topics from starting a podcast and building your audience to the meaning of podcasting. Our keynote speaker, Latif Nasser, will be joining us for a conversation at 1pm on Saturday, October 16th.
1: You will find links for registration and other information on the website humanitiespodnetwork.org. That's humanitiespodnetwork.org. Welcome to High Theory. We have here with us Matt Poland, and we are going to talk about archives. Matt, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm Matt Poland. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Washington in Seattle.
1: Thank you so much for coming to High Theory.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Absolutely. I'm so glad that someone on high theory is finally going to answer the question, what the heck are archives? Uh, yeah. Well, I'll try to answer it because it
2: really depends on who you ask. So this being high theory, I thought I'd start with a couple of theorists. So if you ask Foucault about archives, for example, he says archives are the law of what can be said, which is a rather serious seeming sentence. He talks about archives as the model for reality in the past, right? It's kind of the boundaries of what can be said about the past. And he's really the theorist who we can thank for archives becoming a metaphor that has a lot of currency and a lot of different meanings in critical theory. Derrida took that up and took it in kind of a Freudian direction in Archive Fever, where he maps the archival dynamics of memory and suppression onto the analogous Freudian concepts of the pleasure principle and the death drive, talking about the fear of cultural loss or of loss in general as being a primary thing in Freudian psychoanalysis. In an altogether different direction, if you ask Julietta Singh, for example, she talks about the body as an archive, our bodies as repositories of what history deposits in us, and also pain, desire, race, sexuality, the deposits of other bodies. So it has a wide-ranging Purchase in different areas of critical theory, but also I think useful to think about is the definition that the Society of American Archivists provide, which is that archives are permanently valuable records that are the documentary evidence of past events. And mm. I outline all of these because I think my own answer <laughs> uh, kind of goes somewhere in between.
1: I think this is a this is a good point to ask you about your work at large? Like, what do you do with archives?
2: So I should say that I have a background in library and archival studies, so I'm kind of an archivist at heart. But I really try to think of the archives themselves and the way that the archival collecting practices and classification practices really shape our scholarly endeavors in ways that we frequently don't acknowledge fully. We kind of take history and critical theory as epistemological priors for everything we do as literary scholars and critics, but we don't really think reflectively a lot of times about Libraries and archives themselves as preconditions or as another meta discourse for humanist scholarship that really shapes our horizons of expectations and the questions that we can answer, even the questions that we can pose using archival materials. So, a quote from the archival theorist wolfgang ernst who is eminently quotable the power of memory lies less in the past than in its undeceivable storage which is in every powerpoint i've ever made and (laughs) and uh and i really so so my work is literary historical and critical but also tries to think about the storage itself right Right. and how that leaves traces
1: on the materials that we work on on the note of storage which is at once this kind of sense of riches that any person interested in archival research encounters but also the act of storing itself and the politics of that Absolutely. Uh, let me ask you my second question on that note great how do we use archives one of the most useful thought experiments
2: that I've encountered in terms of using archives is Anne-Laura Stoller, mm. who's a historian of empire, mm. uh, has this idea of reading with the archival grain that kind of pulls against Walter Benjamin's famous brushing history against the grain approach, mm. which has kind of become a th- truism, right? And Laura Stoller talks about reading with the archival grain is reading the materials that go along that, like you were saying, that situate the letters or preserved documents and classify them and how they ended up getting to where they repose now. And so how I do that is by expanding my Archive to consider catalog finding aids and auction catalogs. George Eliot, for example, how her letters and notebooks, a lot of them ended up in the middle of the 20th century being sold to the Yale University Library. So a lot of my research has taken place there into how did these things end up there and Mm. how then did the priorities of the people at Yale in the 1930s shape Victorian scholarship? George Eliot is a novelist who is really central to Victorian studies, right? Or yeah. to studies of fiction more generally. And so my question going into it was like how did that happen? And so I've spent a lot of time doing research on Gordon Haight, who was an English professor at Yale, I think from the 30s through the 70s. And his life's work was editing George Eliot's letters and writing the first full biography of her. Since the 19th century, what I really wanted to understand in this work is the ways that his interests and his priorities, kind of as a curator at the same time as he was being an editor and a biographer and a critic, shaped how we think about George Eliot. And so one of the conclusions that I've come to is that hate's interests really directed us away from thinking of her as a poet towards thinking of her as a novelist. What I think from having spent a lot of time in the archives at Yale is that that's at least partly because Gordon Haight was kind of faintly embarrassed by her poetry. <laughs> like the, mm. those, he really wanted to reclaim George Eliot as this great novelistic intellectual figure of the 19th century. And yeah. her faintly religious poetry didn't really fit into that image. And so that bias really shaped his collected letters of George Eliot and his biography of George Eliot which are texts that anyone who works on George yeah. Eliot they really shape your perspective
1: yeah yeah. this reminds me of a course on Oscar Wilde I did that in by You when I was in my coursework and I am such a fan of his plays and essays and when I read Oscar Wilde's poems and I was like I do not want to do this Because this is embarrassing for him and it's embarrassing for me. (laughs) Yeah. But I was talking to a professor and he was like, it's very deliberate. I didn't want to keep those bad poems out of this course. Right, right. And I
2: think that that is a type of transparency. Like, I don't want to hate on Gordon Haight to make a very bad pun because you know, he he was a really scrupulous scholar whose work shapes our understanding of this hugely significant figure. But he, of course, had to acknowledge that George Eliot was a poet, but there are omissions from the letters having to do with that, that I trace in my dissertation. Another example is from Nancy Henry's great book, George Eliot and the British Empire, where she mm. really... Maps out all of the investments that George Eliot and George Henry Lewis, her husband, had in the British Empire. So they, you know, a lot of her income came from being invested in the railroads in India and in Australia and in things like that. And so Nancy Henry shows how, in accounting for Eliot's income, Gordon Haight talks about her literary sources of income. He's like, okay, she got X number of pounds for selling Middlemarch uh, or something, yeah. but leaves out the income from these imperial investments, which you can see the rationale that he's editing a literary figure's letters, that, that he's writing the biography of a literary figure. But those entanglements that get kind of
1: obscured are really important, I think. Absolutely. So we talked about entanglements and we talked about how posterity views or reads authors and how archival methods determine that. So with that in mind, how will archives save the world?
2: I always love this question and I'm really glad that I feel like In some senses, archives can save the world, damn it. There is a hashtag that started a few years ago on Twitter that's Archives Are Not Neutral, Mm -hmm. which was started by the archivist Ashley D. Stevens, that really has become kind of an archive in itself of the ways that archives shape the materials that they contain. I I looked at it yesterday to see if it was still going. And there was a series of tweets talking about records of Vietnamese migrants to America after the Vietnam War. And if I remember correctly, because of the way that they were cataloged, you had to use racist terminology to find in the catalog to find records, like using the term Vietnamese would not uh, get you everything that is in this archive. And so projects like that, I feel like are one way that archives can actually save the world. I think too, of archives of different aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement the Baltimore Uprising Archive Project, which is this amazing and really disturbing collection of materials from the protests after Freddie Gray was murdered by police in Baltimore in 2015. And they really emphasize history not written from above or not written by the victors. And I think that projects like these really create a clear link between activists and scholars and archivists, right, who often talk about how they're treated as second-class citizens by scholars. Yeah. One of the things that we really need to remember to do as academics is to treat memory workers like archivists and librarians and museum curators as equals who have theoretical as well as, you know, practical uh,
1: insights of their own. Yeah. I mean, you know, given the number of times that they save our asses on a regular basis. All
2: the time, all the time. I think also something that I'm especially interested in is reflecting on how contingent our practices as scholars are on both on archivists and like physically being in archives or as in the case of the last couple of years and not being in archives. Being an archival scholar is really contingent on like accidental discovery you know and how you're feeling that day when you're sitting there in an archive feeling vaguely awkward or you know sometimes a little bit sleepy which are two of my primary archival effects I think and I think that those sorts of reflections can really enhance our scholarly practices by giving us a sense of how fragile our insights are
1: yes absolutely Thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us about archives. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My very great pleasure.
0: And thank you for listening to High Theory.
1: If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon,
0: or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio.
1: You can also find us at
0: hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.